Okay. Hello, Esther. Okay, so this week, an interesting, an interesting thing is going to happen. And um, a little bit of a backstory. So what happens is that um, due to the calendar, the way it used to be, there was no set calendar. It would work on the two witnesses showing up at the Holy Temple to the courthouse there. And uh, as an outcome of that, without getting into all the details, as an outcome of that, anyone with what, which any place which was within a 15-day traveling radius of the Holy Temple would have a one-day holiday. Anyone outside of that 15-day um, traveling radius would have a two-day holiday. And until this very day, it's that way. In Israel, they have one day. And outside of Israel, they have two-day holidays. Now, what that caused this year was that the last major holiday we had, which was the holiday of Shavuot, where the day that we celebrate um, receiving the Ten Commandments. So outside of Israel, Thursday, I'm sorry, Thursday night, Friday, Saturday was the holiday. In Israel, the holiday was only on Friday, not on Saturday. Now, what that did on practical terms, what that did was that on the Saturday, which outside of Israel was a holiday, we did not follow the annual cycle of Torah reading because we had to read the special holiday Torah reading for the second day of Shavuot. Now, in Israel, being that Saturday was no more the holiday, therefore, on Saturday, they continued on with the next portion in the order of the annual cycle. Since the holiday of Shavuot, Israel has always been reading one Torah portion ahead of us. So if last week we read the story of Korach, they were already reading the story of Chukat. Now, Chukat and Balak, which are the name of two Torah portions, can sometimes be paired up together when we don't have a leap year and we have to pair up certain Torah portions. So outside of Israel, we're going to be reading Chukat and Balak Israel will just be reading the second Torah portion, Balak, because they already read last week the Torah portion of Chukat. And thus, we will all catch up with each other. And from here on, moving forward, we'll all be reading the same Torah portion. Just an interesting fun fact um, to share with you. Okay, now these two Torah portions, Chukat and Balak, which outside of Israel we're reading, is actually filled with interesting stuff. So let's jump right into it. And then later, as we always do, we'll focus on one theme and make it practical and relative to our life. Mystical and then practical. So the Torah portion, the first, number one, opens up with the commandment of the red cow. Now, what is the commandment of the red cow? So to understand this, we just need to know that as we've studied in Leviticus, 
primarily there, we learned the laws of impurities. Now there's very different levels of impurity. We learned of a major one, which is leprosy. We learned of another major one, if you're in the same room with a corpse. We learned of one that's not so major, which would be the menstrual cycle for a woman, passing semen for a man. Um, so we have all these different levels of impurity. Now, of the hardest category of impurities, and, and the hardest category is coming in contact with a, a carcass, a dead body, because you'll remember that the beginning of all sin, which was when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, so God told Adam, on the day that you will eat from this tree of knowledge, you will die. And, um, and we're not going to get into why he lived, um, what the definition of a day there means. What's important for us to understand is that were it not for sin, mankind would not die. Um, and, and, you know, a human being would not just exist eternally as a species, but actually each individual. The only reason why death came along is because once man ate from the tree of knowledge, he bonded with evil. And thus, if man would live forever, so would evil. Thus, only when Mashiach comes and, as the prophet says, that evil will be eradicated, once again, man as an individual, not just as a species, will be able to live on eternally. Now, what this means to us here is that death is united with, it's one with evil and impurity. Thus, the dead body is considered impure. Anyone in a room or touching the a dead body is impure. Now, this level of impurity is of the harshest, and thus it's not just about going to the ritual bath it's not just about going to the ritual bath and waiting for sunset. It actually has a seven-day process. And in two days of those seven-day process, the third and the seventh, one must be sprinkled on by the red heifer. Now, the process of the red cow was that they would have to find a cow which did not even have two hairs that were any other color than red. One here is still okay, two here is not. And just to tell you in brief, well, what happened is that that red heifer actually was not slaughtered in the Holy Temple. It was taken outside to a mountain from which they were able to see the Holy Temple. Over there would be slaughtered like all the sacrifices were slaughtered according to the, excuse me, the laws. The blood would be sprinkled towards the holy temple and then what would happen is the entirety of the red cow would then be consumed by flames they would then take the ashes of that the, the ashes of the red cow and it was a process how you mixed it in with water special water which was called living waters and a whole process how it came from the holy temple which had the kior, the wash basin, which was connected to a living well water. And you would also add on to it two other ingredients, a piece of cedar and a wisp. And from there, you would then have that mixture 
and you would be sprinkled upon by the Kohen, you would come on the third day and on the seventh day of your cleansing process. The same thing also would happen with leprosy. Again, this was only for the deepest category. Now, what's amazing about this red heifer is that King Solomon says in Ecclesiastic, I believe it's chapter 7, verse 23, and he says over there as follows. He says, I have wisened, and it remained distant from me. And we're going to talk about that later, that the statute, it's called Zot Chukat. It is the statute. The difference in Jewish law between the categories of mitzvot that are called statutes and judgments is whether we can appreciate a logical reason to this or not. Now, even King Solomon, the wisest of all men, did not achieve. He understood every other statute, but this statute he did not understand. As a matter of fact, our sages tell us on the second verse that says, the yikhu elecha, and they will take to you the red heifer, and our sages want to know, why did they bring it to Moses? None of the other sacrifices were brought to Moses. And one of the interpretations is, to you, I will reveal it. To the rest, I will not reveal it. Moses was the only person who knew God revealed to him the reason of the red heifer. No one else, including King Solomon. And our sages tell us that it wasn't the entirety of the commandment that he didn't understand. What he didn't understand about it was one very critical detail. If you look at the verses, anyone, any one of the priests that had anything to do with any part of the process of the red heifer became impure. Thus our sages say what is unique and mind-boggling about the red heifer is that it impurified the pure and it purified the impure. Thus you'll see the one who gathers the ashes, the one who burnt the cow, so every one of them, it says they had to go to the mikvah. They became impure. And this very red heifer process that impurified the kohanim that were dealing with it, they became impure while the deepest level of the impures will become pure. That is one of the details he didn't understand. I just want to also share what does it mean that they will become that the, uh, the, you have to put it into living waters. Our sages say, what does the word living waters mean? And the answer is that it needs to be of a body of water that never dries up. If it dries up, even the Talmud talks about a certain river that dried up once in seven years, that would not be kosher. Anyway, it tells us how to make it. It tells us that on the third and seventh day of the person who is becoming pure, he has to be sprinkled by it, and so and then it goes on. I just want to share with you one more teaching. The reason why the two specific ingredients, other than the the um, the water and the ashes, is that the hyssop and the cedar. It's to tell us that the source of all sin, of impurity is the boastfulness ego of the cedar tall tree being tall, standing with ego, 
and the rectification is to be as humble and as uh, bendable as the hyssop. Okay, with that being said, I just want to share with you one more thing. Our sages talk about it. I'm going to talk about it later in greater detail. I just want to give you one mystical quick concept. Why is this called the statute of all Torah? Which means that this is the quintessential, all-encompassing mitzvah of all 613 mitzvot. And according to Kabbalah, the answer is because all mitzvot are to create a dual relationship with God of ebb and flow. Thus, this mitzvah is the secret of fire ebbing, yearning upwards, and water flowing, drawing downwards. A double connection with God when we do the mitzvot. Okay, let's move right along over here. The next story it tells us is about the passing of Miriam. So now we're standing at the 40th year, right before they go into Israel. And on the 40th year, right before they go into Israel, three, the three siblings, Miriam, Aaron, and Moshe, are going to pass away. So here we talk about Miriam's passing. Our sages say, what is the connection between Miriam's passing and the red cow? And it gives us the rule. Just as the red cow atones for the impurity by the will of God, so too the passing of the righteous atones for the sins of the masses. Okay. Now, uh, to understand the next story, we have to understand that there were three miracles that happened consistently for the Jewish people in the desert. One was that they received the manna. That was in the merit of Moses. The second one was that they were protected by the clouds of glory. That was in the merit of, that was in the merit of Aaron. The third thing was that water came forth from a rock, and that was in the merit of Miriam. Now you'll understand why after 40 years, all of a sudden, Moses being told again to go to the stone. Because when Miriam passed away, the stone stopped giving forth its water and rolled itself back to where all the other stones were. Thus God tells Moses, now that Miriam passed away, it'll have to be in your merit that you bring it back, the water coming from the rock. And thus the famous story, Moses is told to go talk to the rock, but he's also told to bring along his staff. And this was the point of confusion because, I mean, simply speaking, this was the point of confusion because the first time he was told to bring his staff and to hit the rock. This time he was told to bring the staff and to speak to the rock. According to our sages, Moses originally spoke to the wrong rock and the rock didn't give forth water. And he thought to himself, one second, the first time I had to hit, this time I spoke and it didn't work. I probably have to hit. And again, he turns around, but this time he's facing, unbeknown to him, the right rock. And instead of talking to it, he hit the rock. And the rock began to give out little droplets of water as if to say, crying, why did you hit me? And Moses sees that it's working. He hits the rock again and the water gives forth water. 
and the rock gives forth water, and Moses is told, and it's a very interesting phrase, because you did not have faith in me, and you did not sanctify me in the eyes of it before the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you will not come to see the Holy Land. Now, obviously, what happened here? What was the question of faith? What was the question of sanctification? I mean, really. So if Moses speaks to the rock and he brings water, wow, that's a miracle. If he hits the rock and brings water, that's not a sanctification of God's name. So our sages tell us that God told Moses, if you would have spoken to the rock and it would have given forth water, I would always be able to hold the Jewish people accountable. The rock that has neither reward or punishment listens to me when I speak to it. And you people who have reward and punishment don't listen to me. The fact that you didn't allow the rock to give water through speaking, rather punishing it and hitting it, thus I can no more tell the Jewish people, how can you not listen to me? Now, according to Chabad Hasidus teachings, there's an unbelievable teaching that Moses knew exactly what God was planning to do. Thus, he purposely hit the rock so that God would never be able to hold the Jews accountable for not listening when he just talks to them. Thus, the depths of Moses' sacrifice to protect his people was that he willfully hit the rock, losing his portion in the Holy Land, just that God should never be, hold, be able to hold over the heads of the children of Israel. Ha, the rock listened to me and you didn't, which is an interesting teaching. But simply speaking, the answer is that because Moses was of such great stature and therefore the slightest stain on fine, expensive silk, white silk, is far more noticeable than a stain on coarse black wool. Thus, for such a slight infracture that God told him speak, and he ended up hitting, he was held accountable. Okay, now we go further on. And the Jewish people are beginning already to approach to the border countries of the promised land. And over here, I just want to point out, there are three lands, three nations, they will not be able to bother. Edom, which is the offspring of Esau, the twin of Jacob, we, we were told that it's not yet time to conquer their land. So too, the lands that were given to the offspring of Lot, which was the brother-in-law of Abraham. You remember that he ended up having children from his own daughter, from one he had Moab, and from the other Ammon. Those two nations also, we were told, you cannot bother because Lot kept the secret of Sarah being Abraham's wife and not a sister. Thus God said, until Mashiach comes, we will not be touching their lands. And moving forward now with the story, they come to Edom and all the Jewish people, Moses sends a messenger and says, allow us to travel through your land. We will not conquer. 
not only we will not conquer, we will make sure to give you business, even though we have enough food and enough clothing and enough drink, we will make sure to buy from you so that you're letting us cross through the main road of your land will actually go ahead and be profitable for you. They said no, and they actually came out with their army to show that they were serious. You're not going. The next step in the story is the passing of Aaron. So Aaron was told that he should go up to a mountain. The mountain is called Har Har Har, the mountain upon a mountain. It was like a double mountain. And over there, he was told to bring along his son. And Moses, Aaron, and his oldest son, Elazar, comes. And God tells Moses to tell Aaron to take off his high priestly clothes. And as he's taking them off, getting into his shrouds, Elazar should be putting them on. Thus, he had the greatest pleasure a father can have, seeing his son carrying on his legacy. And then Aaron passes away. Now, I want to just point out something amazing. If you look at what the response of the Jewish people was when Aaron passed away, it says the entire house of Israel mourned for him. If we were to jump ahead to the last verses in the book of Deuteronomy, you'll see that by Moses, it wasn't the house of Israel, it was the men of Israel. And our sages point out that being that Moses was primarily a teacher of Torah and primarily teaching the men, it was primarily the men that cried and mourned over his death. While Aaron, besides being a teacher, as we know from our sages, he was famous as a lover of peace. And thus, because he would make peace between husbands and wives, he was mourned not only by the men, but also by the women. Now, as I told you previously, that the passing of Aaron would also affect that the clouds of glory would leave until Moses would bring them back. Now, the arch enemy of the Jewish people, which were the Amalekites, saw that the clouds of glory left, and they thought, aha, we have now an opportunity to attack, and they went to attack the Jewish people. Now, the next story is an interesting story, and it was when the Jewish people complained against Moses, against the water, against the bread, the manna, and God sent serpents to attack the Jewish people. Now here, God tells Moses, when Moses prays for the Jewish people that God should forgive them, God says to him, make a staff with a, of a snake. Now, just to let you know, this is where the universal medical symbol comes along with that stick in which you have the snakes around it. The only place that I've ever seen that the medical symbol did not have the snakes, the snakes was upon the Hatzola vans in Kronheitz. Because when they brought the first one with the snakes on the symbol, the medical symbol, when the Rebbe came to Shul and saw it, on that Shabbos he asked that the snakes should be removed because the snakes was a sign of a sin. It was because of the sin of the original serpent. And in this week's Torah portion, it was the punishment that the serpents came 
Jewish people, which is what led to the serpent on the snake, on the staff, and thus the Rebbe asked to remove the snakes from that staff on the ambulance in Crown Heights, and so it was. But either way, our sages tell us, and just to reinforce what the Rebbe is saying, our sages tell us, what, what, what does it have to do with looking at it? The God said, if they get bit by a snake and they look at that staff, they won't be killed. And the sages say, what does that mean? The, 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 copper, the copper snake uh, on the staff, that's going to save their life? And the answer is no. What it meant is to look up to heaven. If they look up, if they look with intentions, then they'll be saved. I want to just sneak in here an amazing teaching of Nachmanides. Nachmanides was also a doctor, a philosopher, a codifier, a Kabbalist, and a commentary on the Torah. And uh, one year, I just learned through the Torah with the, with the commentary of Nachmanides, and he gives an amazing medical twist to this. He says that in his times, the doctor's offices were very careful not to have pictures of animals that would bite. They would get dog bites, whatever it may be. And he says, why? Because medically speaking, if you get bit by an animal and you're thinking, the power of the mind, you're thinking about that animal speeds up the effect of the venom. He says, Nachmanili says, that the reason why God told Moses to put the snake on the staff, the copper form of a snake, which was the exact of the medically correct thing to do was for a simple reason that the Jewish people should clearly know that what happening, what's happening here is not a medical attack, it's not a natural event, but rather a punishment for what they did, demanding that they do teshuvah repentance. Okay, moving right along from here, they're now moving along. Uh, upon uh, and the, the, the Torah tells us that actually the Jewish people didn't know but they were walking into an ambush and God made that because when the Jewish people traveled the clouds of glory flatten out the land kill the serpents and move the mountains out of the way according to our sages therefore when the two mountains moved the ambush that was in between what was a protruding part of one mountain and an engraved part on the other mountain smashed them, and thus the Jews were saved. And the Jewish people didn't even know it until they started seeing blood flowing in the water. And thus they investigated, and they understood the miracle that happened. And thus in our Torah portion, you have the Jewish people singing praise to God. Okay. The next thing is they pull up to the next land. Again, they're asking to go out and to, uh, to be able to cross. And that, that was a land that wasn't uh, forbidden to them, but they were, it wasn't their land. And because the, the uh, leader um, came out to tell, to threaten, and uh, you know, you're not coming through and we're gonna, we're gonna fight you. And therefore, what happens is Moshe ends up going to war with this person and he ends up conquering this, uh, this uh, place. And the Jewish people had their first land that they're now conquering as their own. On the other side of the Jordan, 
but that's what they conquered. That is in brief Torah portion number one. Torah portion number two is one long famous story. And this story is actually what inspired the famous children movie called Shrek, in which there is a talking donkey. So, there is a man by the name of Balak ben Sippor. He was the king. And he's afraid that the Jewish people are coming to conquer him. And he knows that no one is able to win the Jewish people because God is fighting their wars. So he goes ahead and he says, I need to look into their secrets. So he goes ahead and he finds out from the people where Moses ran away to when he had to run away from Egypt as a young man after he killed the Egyptian and he had to run away. And he goes there to the Midian. And now this Balak inquires from the Midianites, what's the secret of this leader? He grew up amongst you. And they told him, his power is his mouth. His power is his prayer. So he says, ah, so our power is the hand. His power is the mouth. The mouth is stronger than the hand. I will fight him on his warfare. Thus he hires the prophet called Bilam, who's known that his curses impact, saying that he's going to hire him to curse the Jewish people. And thus it is, tell you the story in brief, that he hires, he sends the people to Balak to hire him. Balak says, I can't go unless God tells me I can go. And he says, stay over the night. He goes that night, he sleeps, and God speaks, spoke to him in a dream and said, who are these people that are coming to, uh, to uh, meet you? And our sages tell us that God gave an opening for Balak to think that he can fool God. Oh, you don't know? You have to ask me. So he says, they came to hire me um, to curse the Jewish people, and God tells him, do not go. The next night, the, he, the next time he tells them, he's not willing to tell them that I don't have the right to go. So he tells them, God said that a man of my stature cannot be going with people of your stature. The king has to send far greater people to pick me up. And sure enough, there's more wealth and more higher prestigious people coming from the king Balak. And he tells them again, wait, and I'll ask God. And overnight, again, God, he, he asks, uh, you know, he, go, he prepares himself a prophecy and God tells him, that if you want to go with them, you can go with them. But just remember, it's my words that I put in your mouth that you will have to say. And thus he comes there and along the way, the donkey, now here's an interesting thing. Part, according to the Talmud, part one of the story isn't a miracle. Part one of the story is that only human beings were denied to see spirits and angels because we would know what we're looking at and we would freak out. However, animals that don't understand what they're looking at, they actually can see spirits and angels. Now, that being the case, the donkey actually saw the angel standing in the way with a sword to kill Bilam. He tries to save his master's life by moving out of the way. He does this three times, and each time, Bilam, who doesn't see why he's getting off the road, hits him. And then on the third time, Vayiftach Hashem as Pia Osen, 
God opens up the mouth of the donkey, giving it the power of speech. And what does the donkey tell to Bilam? Why is it that you have hit me three times? Have I not been loyal to you all my life? And he said, were I to have able to kill you right now, I would kill you because of what you've done. You've disrespected me and that the last time you even crushed my foot by moving against the wall. And obviously to the soldiers, this was like, okay, you need a knife, a sword to kill a donkey, but you're about to curse 600,000 people and that's supposed to work. But nevertheless, at that point, God allows Bilam to see what the donkey saw. And when he saw the angel of God, he immediately fell to his knees and he said, you change your mind and you're telling me that I shouldn't go, I won't go. And the angel says, no, I'm not changing my mind. I'm just coming to warn you again. You'll only say the words that I place into your mouth. By the way, the donkey of the donkey died after that story. And our sages tell us, obviously the reason why the donkey died is so that there wouldn't be an idolatry made out of it. Oh my God, the donkey that saw the angel and spoke, it must be God. So therefore the donkey died. Okay, Bilam comes to Balak and Bilam and Balak asks him, why didn't you come? Were you afraid I couldn't pay you? He says, I told you, I can only do what God tells me to do. And Bilam tells him to erect for him altars and to bring sacrifices, and through this, he would go into the trance and hopefully find favor in heaven to be able to curse. And as you read the story, you'll see that this happened three times. He could not curse the Jewish people. God kept on placing blessings within his mouth. One of the most beautiful um, prayers that we say in the morning, Matovu Ahalecha Yaakov, how goodly are your tents, O Israel, actually was not said by Moses, but was said by Bilam. And just to tell you why he said that. He said that because he saw that the Jewish people set up their tents in a way that they could not look into their neighbor's tents. Meaning that the Jewish people took upon themselves not to be yentas, live and let live and mind your own business. When he saw that, he said, how blessed are these people. Moral of the story, we should live and let live, mind their own business, and stop looking into other people's windows and other people's tents and other people's bank accounts and other people's cars and so forth and so on. My little piece over here. But going right along, after the times where he could not curse the Jewish people and he blessed them, Balak, the king who hired him, loses his temper and says, I hired you to curse them, but definitely don't bless them. And by the way, just to let you know, when it didn't work the first time, Bullock said, well, you know what? Maybe you can't curse all of them. Maybe I'll take you from a little place where you'll only see part of them. At least you can weaken them. Nothing worked. At this point, Bullock ridicules Bilam. I was going to send you wealth and glory. God has denied you of your wealth and glory. At this point, Bilam, not to be snuffed out by Bullock, goes ahead and tells Bullock, rise on your feet as I will give you the word of God. And Bullock rises up, and that's when 
he says, I will now tell you what will be at the end of days. Now here is a little shocker. In the five books of Moses, you have no direct mention of one of the most fundamental beliefs of Jewish faith, which is the coming of Messiah, of Mashiach. We learn it out from extrapolations of different verses, but you have no direct verse in the five books of Moses. The prophets are filled with it, but in the five books of Moses, one of the only places where you'll see it more direct is in the words of Bilaam to Balak when he gets angry at him and says, and now I will tell you what will be at the end of times. And I will read to you some of the verses. And it says as follows. It says, I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but he is not near. A star will shoot forth from Jacob and a staff will arise from Israel. And you see here, he's talking double language. And the double language is because he's prophesizing first about King David and then about the offspring of King David, which is Mashiach. Now, it's interesting. From one of the worst places, we get one of the greatest prophecies. But those are the secrets of God. Now, I want to just tell you the end of the story quickly, and that's going to lead into next week's Torah portion. The story is as follows. But Bilaam's hatred for the Jewish people was so great that even though he saw he could not curse them and that he wasn't going to get a penny for anything that he did, he still wants to attack the Jews. And he tells King Balak, I can only tell you one thing about the Jewish people. Their God has very little tolerance for, for perversiveness. And thus, the deadly sins is adultery and idolatry. Send down your girls to entice them into adultery and use that moment of weakness in adultery to bring them into idolatry. And thus our sages talk about the whole setup, how the, the Talmud literally tells us how it happened, that they were doing business. The Jewish people would buy things and sell things and they would set up the younger women with the older women and the younger women would tell them, I'm going to give you a bargain. And, a, you know, <laughs> the way to the normal man's heart is through the stomach. The way to the Jewish man's heart is through a bargain. And he's got to get a bargain and therefore they came back and then she started flirting with him. Then they ended up having an affair. And then at that moment of weakness where the passion was so strong, she would pull away and she would say, I'm not going to let you go further with me unless you bow. And Jewish people are not into rape, and they wouldn't force themselves on her. So they would perform idolatry and thus finish up with adultery. And because of that, a huge plague broke out amongst the Jewish people. Now, here is a very horrific part of the story. The tribe of Shimon was the most affected, and therefore... They come to their leader and they say to him, we're being wiped out by a plague and you're just sitting here studying Torah and doing your holy stuff? Defend us. He went and he took one of the women, a princess, and he went to Moses and says, is it permissible for me to cohabitate with this woman? And Moses says, no. 
says, oh, really? And is your wife not a Midianite? Did you not marry Imijan, the daughter of a Midianite, Jithro? And at that point, our sages tell us that Moses had no answer. And there's a beautiful explanation from the Rebbe. What does this mean? He had no answer. But what ended up happening was that Zimri publicly took this princess and went to cohabitate with her. Now, Pinchas, the grandson of Aaron, he sees this and he sees Moses being in a sense of powerlessness. And he says to Moses, did you not teach us that in such a case, the zealot doesn't even have to go to court. He can just take a spear and kill the guy. And Moses says, obviously God took this law from me and he let you remember it. And therefore he quoted him the famous sage, the famous saying, let he who read the proclamation of the king fulfill the proclamation of the king. And Pinchas went and took a spear, went into the tent and killed both of them. He stuck the spear through both of them. And with that, the anger of God subsided and the plague stopped. Now, just again, wrap this up and then we'll go into what I wanted to talk about. The, the miracles that took place according to the Talmud, number one, you can only kill the person while he's in the act. Was Zimri, upon seeing Pinchas come with a, a, a spear, physically separate, separate himself from that woman? According to that law, he would not be able to kill, and he would actually be put to death if he did kill. On top of that, the law that he was going to kill was not decreed by the house of law. Thus, any one of the tribe of Shimon seeing him head to the, to the, um, the tent of the, one of their leaders could have killed him in protection of their prince, and they would not be held accountable. There's a huge amount of miracles here that took place. That is the two, story, the, two sto- the two Torah portions, the stories that take place that we're going to read in the Torah this week. I do want to also tell you that this Shabbat, is a very special day. It is the 12th day of the month of Tammuz, which is A, the birthday of the previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak of Lubavitch. It is also the day that in 1927, after he was arrested and sentenced to death, and then later the sentence to death was changed to the sentence of exile, and then later the sentence of exile was changed that he can go free, which would lead to him having to leave Russia. And all of this happened happening because he was considered a counter-revolutionist by running the underground um, Jewish network, keeping Judaism alive. He was led and freed out on this day from the city of exile called Kastrama. He was able to return, to return and eventually leave Russia. Now, with that being said, I want to just talk about the opening thing we spoke about, the red heifer. So the red heifer is called the quintessential statute. I shared with you that there are two types of mitzvahs, really three types of mitzvahs. There is the judgment, thou shall not kill, thou shall not steal. These are things that make sense. Use your better judgment. Then there is testimonies, which are all the holidays in Shabbat, which is to testify the miracles of God that God created the world. And then there is the chukim, the statutes which have no logical reason. And I quote to you what Rashi says here. And he says, being that the Satan, the Satan, 
the evil inclination. And the Gentiles will mock you and ask you, why are you doing this? You people are smart. You people have beautiful reasons for all your commandments. Why are you doing this? This is illogical. And you won't have what to answer them. Thus, you should know, and I quote you to sages, it says, I decree this and you have no permission to challenge it or to contemplate it. It's what I said, do it. Now, with that being said, I want to just share with you briefly from a mystical perspective. From a mystical perspective, the Torah of God is the embodiment of the wisdom of God. Chachmato isparach, his blessed wisdom. The mitzvot of God is actually the embodiment of the will, the infinite will of God. So God's commandments is his will. God's teachings in the Torah is his wisdom. Now, according to Kabbalah, what happens is that being that the Torah is the book of knowledge, the book of wisdom, the book of understanding, which explains to us what the mitzvot are, Thus, the process of the evolution of mitzvot is that the will of God descends and clothes itself within the wisdom of God through which we can now study and understand. However, in this process where the will of God closes itself into the wisdom of God, what we have here is different categories. In some levels, we're able to understand the wisdom and thus those mitzvot now become the categories of judgment because it has descended and clothed itself within to the wisdom that we could understand. While then there are different mitzvot that even as they descend and clothe themselves into the Torah and the wisdom of Torah, nevertheless, we cannot understand them because predominantly they remain to us the will of God rather than the perceivable wisdom of God. And thus, even though all the mitzvot come from the will of God, the crown, and they all descend into the wisdom of God, the Torah, nevertheless, we have these different categories. Based upon this, I want to share with you a very important Kabbalistic teaching. And it says that every wit mitzvah has two intentions that one must have when they observe it and perform it. One intention is the specific intention of that mitzvah. And that's why you have so many Kabbalah books known as Ta'amei HaMitzvot, the spiritual mystical reasons of mitzvot. For example, putting on tefillin according to Kabbalah is drawing the intellects of God into the attributes of God, bringing itself down to the actions. The talit, which encompasses you, is all about accepting faith, the yoke of God. So every mitzvah has its own specific, what we call yichudim, unifications, of divine elements to draw divinity into this world. And the Kabbalists would know the specific intentions of every mitzvah. 
and thus they would be able to perform these unifications and draw divinity into the world. That is what we call the kvana pratit, the individual particular intention of this specific mitzvah. However, then there is the all-encompassing intention which is applicable to each and every mitzvah. And what is that? That is the opening of the blessing you make on every mitzvah. Baruch atah Hashem alakinu melech olam. Blessed are you, God, our God, King of the universe. Asher kidishanu b'mitzvotav, which has sanctified us with his commandments. Vitzivanu, and he commanded us. Thus, if you ask any Jew, why are you doing this mitzvah? The simple answer is because he commanded us to. And now you understand why. Because within every mitzvah, there is both categories. There is the category of the mitzvah that it is the illogical will of the infinite God. And thus I do it out of obedience and acceptance that God has said to do this. Then there is the individual intention of what each mitzvah causes in heaven upon earth. So there is the statute of each mitzvah and there is the judgment of each mitzvah. Our job is to embody both of them. Now, for most of us, myself, I don't know the mystical reasons behind mitzvot. Thus, for me, the joy of knowing that there are those who do know it is enough for me to be able to intellectually appreciate that there's a good reason for this mitzvah. On the other hand, my knowing that this mitzvah ultimately comes from the will of God, thus I need to have obedience. So every mitzvah, we have to do two things. Number one, we have to use it to strengthen our faith and our obedience. And number two, we need to use it to be able to become a mensch and align ourselves with the wisdom of God. And I will close with the following. The previous Rebbe, whose birthday it is this week, said like this. The world says, if only I was able to perform the illogical statutes with the same joy, intellectual, and emotional appreciation I have for the mitzvot that I do understand. So their, their prayer is, we should be able to perform the chukim, the statutes, with the same devotion as we do with the judgments, those that we could appreciate emotionally and intellectually. The previous Shabbat said, but I say, if only we could perform the logical mitzvot with the same purity of faith and obedience that we perform the illogical statute. For ultimately speaking, that is the greater level of connection. It's not my emotional, intellectual appreciation, but my faith and obedience to do the will of God. And I finish mine and I'm opening up the mics. Well, Rabbi, I have a very important question here. 